In the 1972 film, Jeremiah Johnson, movie that is vastly underrated in my estimation, um, a young Robert Redford plays a man who has become dissatisfied with normal life in the flats. And he decides to go away. He disappears and after stopping in a town and acquiring the needed supplies, including a genuine hawk and gun, he settles, sets off into the mountains. There he finds all sorts of adventures, but he has a hard time of it to begin with. Um, he's not used to the ways of the mountain and he can't catch fish, can't trap, and he's basically starving. And he runs into what might be described as just a crazy old mountain man. Um, that mountain man teaches him the ways of the mountains and he ends up settling into the rhythms. Years go by and he marries a woman, adopts a son, and settles down building a life there. The turning point of the movie um, is introduced, however, when a group of wagons from down below gets caught and stuck in a mountain pass. The winter is setting in, and because of the considerable reputation that Jeremiah has developed as a, a mountain man down below, um, a group of soldiers come and ask his help. They know that he knows the ways of the mountain. They know that he knows how to survive, and they want him to help save the people. Maybe some of you have been to the Rocky Mountains. Maybe some of you are familiar with what it's like to wander through their passes. Even today, even in, with all of modern technology, with GPS and a lot longer amount of time of, of mapping that area, it's still an extremely dangerous place. In just the last 10 years, nearly 50 people have died. The Tabernacle of Israel was a sort of mountain place as well. Dangerous and wonderful, beauty in its extremes and its unknowns. By way of recap, last time we spoke of the book of Leviticus as a sort of ascent up that liturgical mountain, a symbolic movement upwards towards fellowship and communion with God. And we saw how the book sits at the very center of the Pentateuch, that five-part book that begins the Bible. And that as that centerpiece with its symbolism of ascent, there are a series of steps or stages to the book that we as the reader the audience are led through, that start with the people and their offerings, the priests, purity, and that our ascent is, is culminated or, or summits in the great day of atonement in chapter 16. And then it goes down in reverse, purity, priests, people. Last time we looked at the first step and a bit of a whirlwind tour of the first six chapters. We looked at Leviticus 1.1 to 6.7 and focused on the offerings of the people. And we saw that for the people to ascend to the Lord, for an unholy, sinful people to have fellowship with their holy God, the first thing that they required was vicarious offerings. There was a system of offerings that was gonna be offered for them, for atonement and for fellowship. Offerings that we said ultimately pointed to our Lord Jesus Christ, and his perfect and final offering that we heard about in our scripture reading or in Carol's intro. Tonight we move to the second stage of our ascent, our second step up the liturgical ladder of Israel's worship. And you'll be glad to hear that this time it's only four chapters. We cut it down sometime. 
Tonight we'll be looking at Leviticus 6, 8 to 10, 20. And we'll see that from the second half of chapter 6 to the end of chapter 10, not only did the Israelites need a series of offerings, but they also needed somebody to make those offerings for them. That within the uniquely holy place of the tabernacle, there needed to be a uniquely holy people. Sanctified mountain guides who were familiar with the terrain and the spiritual dangers that came from coming before a holy God. That is, in Israel's ritualized ascent up God's holy mountain, the priests, and especially the Levites, were set aside to play a unique part. And their part involved at least four things. It involved special mediation, special consecration, special expectation, and exhortation. Mediation, consecration, expectation, and exhortation. And we'll see that further, that the priests did, and all that the priests were, ultimately pointed towards our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the substance of their shadow. And that while their role is chiefly and primarily filled in Christ, he then, as the head of the church, has called ministers to act as certain priest-like functions in the church today. The priests played a special part, and that part involves mediation, consecration, expectation, exhortation. Their part is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, which he continues to exercise through his ministers today. And so we begin first with the priest's special mediation. In Leviticus 6, 8 through 7, 38, the second half of chapter 6 and most of chapter 7. And here, the focus is still largely on the offerings. There's a lot of recap and repetition from the first five and a half chapters and what happens in chapter 6 and 7. However, whereas largely last time the focus was on what was expected and required of the people, this time the focus is on what is expected and required of the priests. And so we see in 6.8 that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law for the burnt offering. Right? So whereas Leviticus began in chapter 1, verse 2, with God commanding Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. Now Moses is told specifically to speak to Aaron and his sons. And whereas both of these sections provide instructions for offerings, there's unique emphasis. They both begin with a burnt offering. In Leviticus 1, the people start with the burnt offering. In Leviticus 6.8, the priests start with the burnt offering. But those instructions look relatively different. Where there were, in chapter 1, a wide range of provisions given. Remember, there were uh, provisions for animals offered from the herd, animals offered from the flock, animals from birds. There's all these different details and different prescriptions given on the animals. Here in chapter 6, we see a different emphasis. And picking up in verse 9, we read, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth, on the altar, all night until morning. And the fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and put on his linen undergarment on his body. And he shall take up the ashes to which the fire had reduced the burnt offering on the altar, and put them beside the altar. Then he shall take off his garment, and put on another garment, and carry the ashes outside of the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it, and it shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning, and he shall arrange the burnt offering on it, and shall burn the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. Pretty different, huh? Chapter 1 and chapter 6 are describing the same offerings, but from different perspectives. There's repetition, 
but it reflects different roles, and particularly the priest part as a mediator, that in ministering the offerings, the priests act for the people as their go-between between the Lord. The priests can't enter the tabernacle, or the people can't enter the tabernacle, and so the priests go for them. They enter the tabernacle, mediate for the people. The priest's part in the mediation of offerings is made a continual focus through the rest of chapters 6 and 7. After the burnt offering, there are then instructions made for grain offerings, for ordination, for sin offerings, for guilt offerings, and finally at the end, a much larger section for the peace offerings, which extends from 7.15 almost all the way to the end of the chapter in 7.36. Of emphasis in a lot of this material is the priest's part in the offering, the part that the priests got to keep aside for themselves and eat. That is, the, because the priests played a specific part in the worship of Israel, there were certain special provisions for them. That is, their, their livelihood, their diet, came from special parts of these offerings that were set aside for them. So we see that in 6.18, every male among the children of Aaron can eat of the burnt offering, and similarly with the guilt offering in 7.6, the more general grain offering in 7.10. Because of the priest's special part, God made a special provision for them. However, there's another important thing to notice in the various instructions regarding the priest's mediation of these offerings. That is, in 619 to 23, we see a description made of a grain offering for ordination. It's an offering that we don't actually see beforehand in the first five and a half chapters. And unlike the other offerings that are described, the priests don't get a part in it. We read in 623, that every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. The priests may have a special part to play in the offerings of Israel, special administration, but they themselves were still sinners. They had to offer their own offerings. They had to mediate their role, their life before the Lord. It cost them something, and they weren't to benefit from those offerings that were their own. In humble recognition of their own need, despite their special office, they were not to partake. They had a special part to play, but it wasn't because of anything special about them. Rather, it was by God's grace. This is seen by them not being able to partake in their own offering, but it's also seen in the consecration that was required of them. Turning now to chapters 8 and 9, we see that because of the special role of the priest's mediation, the giving up of offerings. They also required special consecration. Like Johnson's peerage of tutelage under the crazy mountain man, they had to learn the ways of the mountains. And while Johnson learned how to set a beaver trap, the priests of Israel learned how to be holy. And they did this through offerings. Consecration, their special role, their special holiness, comes through the process described in chapters 8 and 9, where we began with our scripture reading. And so starting in 8.1, we read that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering, the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So God's telling Moses what he needs to get this done. It's sort of like when you go on a trip with your family, and there's always somebody checking to make sure you have everything. You have your passport, toothbrush, book to read. God's making sure Moses has everything. Anointing oil, offerings, check. We're good to go. Because the part of the priest's play is unique and it's public by definition, 
the people have to be there, right? You notice that the entire congregation is gathered around to watch them. Their unique role is itself a lesson for Israel, a lesson about who Israel's God is. The Lord is holy. And so if the person is to approach the Lord, they themselves must be holy. And so when the actual process begins, Moses first starts in 8, 10 to 13 and anoints the altar, turning then to Aaron and anointing him, sanctifying them both for the task that they're about to perform. From there, 8, 13 to 32 goes on to describe the full range of offerings that Moses will make on behalf of the priests, the full range that we learned about last time. Before the priests themselves could offer any offerings of their own, any offerings for atonement, any offerings for fellowship, they themselves had to be atoned for. They themselves needed offerings for fellowship. And Moses acts as this mediator. The priests, as a mediator for the people, needed their own mediator in Moses. But for them, the normal ritual progression of offerings wasn't enough. Their role was special, their job was special, and the process of offerings for them needed to be special as well. For them, offerings wouldn't just be made once, not twice, nor even three times. No, instead we read the command in 8.33, and the Lord says through Moses, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed. For it will take seven days to ordain you. As has, and has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged you so that you will not die. For so I have commanded, and Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Seven days, seven rounds of offerings. Each day and every day of the week, Moses would come and all of those offerings that we saw in chapters one through six would be offered. There would be the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Moses would make the full range of offerings seven times. And then their sevenfold consecration, the priests would find perfect and complete holiness before the Lord. With allusions to Genesis, they would be symbolically recreated as a special and holy people, set apart for their special and holy purpose. A life devoted to God. And as a holy people, central to the very life of Israel, to Israel's very purpose for existence, they would be a living and visible reminder of God's desire for the nation as a whole, that Israel in her entirety would be a nation of priests, holy and set apart. A week passes, a week of offerings and obedience. The priests are consecrated, or at least for the most part. Their initial ordination is done. And that part that Aaron and, their, and his sons couldn't do for themselves, Moses, remember Moses had to do this for them. That part is complete. But as we saw earlier, there was a special grain offering, a special dedication offering that they offered for themselves. And, and this is where Leviticus gets cool. The Old Testament gets cool. Almost as an aside, the attuned reader gets to see a beautiful reminder of God's grace on the pages of the Old Testament. In 9.2, Moses calls to Aaron and instructs him, saying, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish. This might not seem all that remarkable at first glance. Whoop-de-doo, Aaron's making another offering. We've had almost eight chapters of that by now. Why is this important? But they aren't just any offerings. 
Particularly, Aaron is told to make his first offering a sin offering of a bull calf. And we find that when you read further in Leviticus, when you look closely at the rest of the Pentateuch, this is the only time in Israel's sacrificial system where a bull calf is commanded for an offering. In all of the Pentateuch, when Moses uses this word for an offering, it refers to Aaron. And it either refers to his sin with the golden calf in Exodus 32, or to his ordination offering for the high priest here in Leviticus. The Lord in front of all of his people, remember the entire congregation is gathered and watching. The Lord in front of all of his people shows that his merciful forgiveness and provides early echoes to Christ's recommissioning of Peter, threefold calling him to feed his sheep after Peter denied him three times. Yahweh shows once and for all that Aaron's past sins with the golden calf will not undermine his role as high priest, whereas a lifeless imitation of a calf had once called Aaron and brought Aaron into idolatry and disrepute. Now a spotless and living calf would bring Aaron into the very presence of the Lord, the presence of the king of the universe. With our God, our sin will not stand in his way. Our faithlessness will not prevent our king's providential plan. And so the Lord's grace comes into effect. And in a moment of of great drama and unimaginable import, the chapter ends with Aaron concluding the required offerings for himself, his family, and for the people. And verse 22 reads, Then Aaron lifted his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from the offering, the sin offering, and the burnt offering, and the peace offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings. And the pieces fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Can you imagine? For the first time in Israel's history, she has a high priest. He's made the offerings for the people. And the problem that Exodus left us with has been solved. Not only Moses, but Moses and Aaron can enter the tent of meeting. What had just been a tent of dwelling, where God was dwelling, now is a tent of meeting, and Israel can come before her Lord and have fellowship with him. This is what humanity had been waiting for since Genesis 3. There's fellowship with the Lord. With a burning, consuming fire, the Lord puts a cherry on top of it all. The offerings of the people and the administration and the consecration of the priests is accepted. The people shout and fall on their faces in worship. I think I would have too if I was there. The priests part involved mediation and it involved consecration. But let's pause here for a moment. We've looked at the first two pieces of the puzzle. The mediation of the priests and their special consecration. And we've said that at the beginning, The priest's roles are just a shadow to Christ. They point forward to Jesus, the ultimate high priest, who belonged to a priesthood wholly different in its order, something that the book of Hebrews picks up on, that Carol read in part earlier. So the author of Hebrews can say that in 727, that he, being Christ, has no need like the high priests, the high priest like Aaron that we've just been discussing, He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his sins and then for the sins of the people. 
since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron. Aaron failed with the golden calf, and it was only by God's sheer graciousness that he was able to continue his administration and his calling. But our Lord triumphed. When Satan tempted him in the wilderness, when Peter told him to abandon the cross, our Lord remained blameless, active in his obedience, receiving the punishments for sin in our behalf. In Christ, we have a better high priest and a better offering. And so today, because of the work of our Lord, only because of the work of our Lord, we as believers stand in the fulfillment of Israel's purpose. We stand, as the Apostle Peter tells us, a chosen race in and of ourselves, a royal priesthood, a holy nation called to witness to our Lord and carry his presence to the ends of the earth. We don't have to have the concerns for daily offerings, liturgical hierarchies, or the mediation of sin. Christ has done this all. Instead, we have the confidence of sons and daughters to know that in faith our sins have been forgiven. The great Reformation doctrine of the priesthood of all believers is given context and content when we look at the priesthood found in Leviticus. Each of us has been consecrated, made holy by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. uniting us to Christ who ever lives to make intercession for us. Our consecration and our mediation is found in Christ alone. But what about the next two, right? I said that there were four aspects of the priesthood. What about the expectations on them? What about their exhortation? Aren't they fulfilled in Christ as well? Yes, absolutely. But let's turn to those now and see how those expectations, the high expectation on Israel's priesthood and their exhortation are also carried on in the ministers of our church today. And so we turn to chapter 10. If only the story could have ended in chapter 9. If only it could have ended with accepted offerings, a high priest who had done his job, the glory of the Lord and shouts of worship. But between Eden and Jerusalem, sin is ever crouching at our door, desiring to make the holy people of God a ruin. And it took hold of Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu. In a dizzying about face, chapter 10 begins. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron's, each took his censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. The fire that God had just so recently sent as a mean of acceptance and fellowship by the sin of man has turned into the fire of rejection and judgment. And the condemnation that we see is a profound story picture that before the Lord, the priests who played a special part in the mediation, who were set aside with a special consecration, are held to high expectations. They were, as one commentator describes it, those who are, to, are to enter the spiritual danger zone of the tabernacle. And they must be ever vigilant. Nadab and Abihu weren't. We're not sure exactly what their sin was or how they failed so miserably so quickly after their ordination. But one proposal that seems likely is that they may have been drunk, an idea supported later by 10 verse 9, 
and in their drunkenness may have attempted to enter the Holy of Holies to offer incense. This is just a proposal, but what we do know for sure is that their fire was unauthorized. Their actions were not commanded. Time and time again in chapters 8 and 9, the text is clear that every action undertook pertaining to the ordination of the priests was in obedience to the Lord. The priest's consecration and the administrations that they were offering were themselves acts of obedience, response to God's commands. The worship of the Lord done rightly is a response to God's word. He initiates and calls us forth, not the other way around, not like it in Nadab and Abihu. So important was the priest's conduct within the tabernacle that after all of this, Aaron wasn't able to grieve or mourn the loss of his sons. He kept silent. And this is likely because of the severity of the sin that led to their death. And so Aaron, as the high priest, wouldn't be allowed to seem like he was identifying with them in any way. A similar example can be found a few centuries later when one of King David's sons rebels against him. After a series of battles, a series of wars, King David's son is killed and David mourns. He grieves. And after a time, one of David's generals comes to him says, don't you know what this looks like? Those men that just fought for you, men that died for you, and you're grieving your son. Now, whether or not David's mourning was right, it's aside, it helps us to understand that in Israel's culture, in this culture that is so different from ours, their leaders, especially the priests, especially the kings, actions communicated something to the people. It taught them about who their God was taught them how to act. And so Aaron could not mourn his sons. Aaron's sons had sinned. They had offered worship that was not commanded. But Aaron had learned his lesson from the golden calf. He held his peace and obeyed the instructions that Moses gave him. While the people were able to mourn Nadab and Abihu, neither Aaron nor his sons were. And so the text tells us that they were not to let their hair of their heads hang loose, nor tear their clothes, lest they die and bring wrath upon the congregation. The priests in their special role represented the nation as a whole, and as such, they couldn't act as individuals. They had to act fitting to their office. There was a high expectation on them. This story and the truths that it communicates should be a stark reminder for Christians, especially for those serving in special offices of the church. Even though in Christ, we have a high priest who has ascended the mountain for us and has torn the temple curtain, has offered once and for all offerings for our sins. We still worship a holy God. A holy God who is antithetical to sin and who will act in judgment in this life and the next. It's the same Lord who struck down Nadab and Abihu in the Old Testament, who struck down Ananias and Sapphira in Acts, and who calls us each to worship at the beginning of service. Christian worship is a holy and reverent thing and not something to be trifled with. And so, in the New Testament, in the book of James, Christian leaders and pastors are warned, not many of you should be teachers. My brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, writing especially about teaching and preaching, writes, now if anyone builds on the foundation with either gold, silver, or precious stones, woods, hay, or straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because 
it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The pithy quote from Spider-Man, that with great power comes responsibility, finds its echo in the scriptural principle that to whom much is given, much is required. There are some of us in this room, there are some of you in this room who are teachers, maybe aspiring to be teachers. Let us, as Paul instructs Timothy, keep careful watch on our teaching and our lives. Let's learn from the foolishness and sin of Nadab and Abihu about who our holy God is and the high expectations he places on us and those who teach and the diligence that we should pursue. And we should find great comfort in remembering that, as one great theologian recently wrote, we find comfort when we remember that our judge is also our friend. The priests played a special part in Israel's worship. Their part involved a special administration of the offerings, a mediation, a special, a special ritual of consecration. And because of all of that, it also involved special expectations. Finally, the special part that the priests played also involved exhortation, or the instruction of Israel. And so starting in chapter 10, verse 8, we read, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Don't drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever through your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. You are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord had spoken to them by Moses. And the first and only address that the Lord makes exclusively to Aaron, and not to Aaron and Moses, he calls him to be clear-minded, to distinguish between clean and unclean, holy and common, and to teach the people. Often we just limit our association with the priests to the tabernacle, offering sacrifices. We forget that they have an entirely other role of teaching, preaching, interpreting the word to the people. As the narrative closes in chapter 10, it highlights this role. That with even all of the seeming clarity that comes with the Mosaic law, all the exacting specifics, sometimes it's not clear what's right or wrong. And so in verse 16, Moses gets super angry with Aaron's sons. There's an offering that was left on the altar. Moses thought they were supposed to eat it, and he gets very angry. Aaron disagrees, and it's unclear to the modern reader what exactly happens there. Maybe Aaron's sons didn't have time to eat this offering because of Nadab and Abihu's sin. Maybe they thought they were unclean because of their brother's sin. We're not really sure. But what we see is that there's ambiguity regarding the practice of the law. There's unclear room for unclarity, room for interpretation. And so Aaron, having been ordained by the Lord, having been mediated for by Aaron, steps into his role with confidence and authority as high priest teaching, disagreeing with Moses, and in the end, Moses approves of his reasoning. The priestly role of instruction is highlighted elsewhere in scripture as well. In Deuteronomy 33.10, Moses writes of the Levites, saying that they shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. And much later, when Israel had gone into exile and returned, we hear of Ezra and other priests exercising this role of exhortation and instruction. In Nehemiah 8, 
They helped the people to understand the law. They read from the book, from the law of God. Clearly, they gave the sense so that people would understand the reading. It's kind of fun, right? That even though the people had a hard time understanding parts of God's word, and they had help for it, people in the Bible had a hard time understanding the Bible. Sometimes we do too. In the special part played by the priests, we see that the origins of preaching in the church of God, they weren't just there to make offerings and hide away in the tabernacle, but were there to study, to practice, to teach God's statutes and laws so that all Israel could understand. So too, pastors and teachers today are called especially to study and teach the word. Throughout the history of the church, God has given gifts to his people. And some of those gifts are, in fact, people. In the Old Testament, one of those gifts was the gift of the office of priest, an office that ultimately fulfilled its substance in the person and work of Christ. He is the perfect and sufficient offering, and he is the blameless and eternal priest. And it is with union with him that all Christians, all believers, are said to be priests. We affirm the priesthood of all believers. The church is a chosen race unto itself, a royal priesthood, holy nation, bringing the very presence of God to the world. She calls people to repentance. She shines light in the darkness, sets the captives free, and she does all of this in the name of her Lord, Jesus Christ, who went before her and was the fulfillment of all the shadows of the Old Testament. But now as the head of his church, Christ continues to give gifts to his people. And pastors and teachers, we see some of the special parts played by the priests continue, not in mediation. Christ is our mediator. We can pray to him, knowing that he ever lives to make intercession for us. But with high expectations and a call to exhort the people. The priests involved mediation, consecration, expectation, and exhortation. The second rung of the liturgical ladder, the priest's part, is ultimately substantiated in Christ and now partly exercised by his ministers. Brothers and sisters, Let's be diligent in praying for our pastors and our teachers, being attentive to their words. Christ, our perfect high priest, has made full atonement for our sins, and he mediates a better covenant, consecrates a new people. We are that people, and to that people he gives gifts, and some of those gifts are people. In the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments, they do the work of the ministry, building us up as the body of Christ pointing us to a unity that is ultimately ours already in Christ, steadying us in a world where the winds and waves threaten us, growing us in wholeness and maturity. Christ, our great high priest, cares for us through his under-shepherds, as we'll see here in a moment in the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the spirit through your son, that he in his very person mediates for us. That he ascended, that he might send the spirit into us, that we might be made sons and daughters. Lord, we praise your sovereignty, we praise your wisdom that you millennia ago gave gifts to the people of Israel in her priests to point us to Christ, to help us understand his work and that you continue to give gifts to your people 
in pastors and teachers. Lord, give us ears to hear your word through them. Give us hearts that are in love with our Lord, who mediates for us evermore, who sanctifies us, and who calls us to high expectation in this life. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.